plus day a couple days ago. He spent a lot of money on that campaign. Um, and uh, so, uh, early, uh, and nothing wrong with that. It's how they use their budget. So I'm not criticizing. But, um, I, but I, so I spent uh, Saturday kind of going through all the different Disney Plus uh, like teasers and things that they kind of had put on there for all the different projects and some really cool stuff, some stuff that we already knew about and some stuff that you didn't even know that you should care about. One of those things um, was a new show from National Geographic that's coming out called Limitless with Chris Hemsworth. I mean, dude's not, uh, dude's a stud. Okay, so, uh, so, so, so he, the show, if you didn't watch this thing yet, uh, the trailer is about... Uh, that Disney invited Chris Hemsworth to go on this journey to discover essentially what it would take to extend the human life expectancy. Like what that, that's like the six part journey is like life expectancy. And, and that's, I mean, it's a kind of an interesting concept. So he's going to go and do a bunch of craziness and talk to a bunch of experts in a number of different fields to talk about life expectancy, how to get the most out of life from a physical perspective. It looks really interesting, um, and it, I don't know when it comes out, so it's not like a full plug, just like a, a half plug for Limitless with Chris Hemsworth. Um, but that reminded me of something that's so interesting about where we're at in the book of Philippians tonight, which is on the topic of life and death, and how we as humans do have a fascination about the concept of extending life, mainly because like, there's a survival component of that. Like if a, a T-Rex is chasing after you or a polar bear, like you should de- probably desire to extend your life by running away from said beast with teeth, right? Like the, the idea of that is survival-based. Um, but we see that in a lot of media, Limitless with Chris Hemsworth. Um, but I was actually thinking earlier this week about a, a movie that I watched a few years ago. It's called 127 Hours. Did any of you see it? Uh, it's a really fascinating movie. Um, it's about this guy named Aaron Ralston, who is a backpacker. And he was going backpacking in 2003 in Utah when he slipped and fell and a boulder pinned his arm against the wall of this, of this canyon cave. And for six days, he tried everything he could to escape this precarious situation. And for six days, he clung on to life. On the sixth day, he ends up creating a tourniquet and amputating his own arm to save his own life. Uh, he wrote a book, movie was made on it. Super fascinating. Um, it's not for the squeamish at all, just, just, just saying. But it just goes to the concept of the reality that there is something about life and about what it means to be alive that really captures our imagination. Now we can expand and survive in the midst of difficult situations. And we've seen wonderful technologies and medical advances that have extended human life expectancy further and further over the last few centuries. Um, In fact, to make things that now exists that just a few decades ago would have been a, maybe a death sentence in a lot of ways. Now with these technologies, you can see those things as there's easy and simple treatments that can actually heal you from what were previously really rough spaces. So we care about expanding our lives and staying alive. But, this, but I was thinking about it from this frame. Imagine though that you are able to live the longest life imaginable but you never really lived for anything. I mean, like to me, that is like my greatest fear. Um, We all fear different things, but like that is personally for me, like my greatest fear is living a life without purpose, without meaning. 
Um, I like the way Oscar Wilde, uh, the famed author, once wrote it. He said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. So then what makes life worth living? What makes life worth living? See, that's the question we're going to be talking about tonight. Because in our world, there are competing stories of different methods and philosophies towards making life meaningful. And all of them are competing. They don't run together perfectly. They are, they are all competing and vying for your attention. And we don't see the inconsistencies between them. All promising that these things can take you from a life of existing to a life of meaning. Whether it is how you feel, your emotional state is what makes life worth living. In other words, the concept of the the point of life is to live the happiest life that you can attain. So whatever you need to do to live a happy existence for you, do that thing. Or it's uh, that um, how you think, what you believe, what you have, what you gain in knowledge. That's what makes life worth living. Maybe for you, it's productivity. This one's a big one for me. Um, whether you are productive and, uh, and very intentional towards a, maybe it's towards your family, uh, maybe it's towards your career goals, or maybe it's to a cause, but it's how productive you are in whatever that thing is. That's what gives life worth li- meaning, worth living. Maybe it's how much of an individual you are, uh, that you want to set up, be set apart. You don't want to blend in with the crowd. That's what makes life worth living how much you consume, how much you make, how much stuff you get. Any of those things can be things that we look to to make life worth living. But in a world of competing stories, informing us of what makes life truly worth living, how do we not only believe the true story, but also desire the true story? Now, by virtue of the fact that you know where you're at, um, that we are in a gathering of the church, um, that the true story I'm talking about is the gospel, like spoiler alert, right? Uh, I'm talking about Jesus. But how we use our time can indicate whether, whether or not you right now believe the gospel to be the true story, the thing that does give life worth meaning or not. What says so much different, though, is not just what we believe to be true, but what our hearts adore, what we desire, the things that we uh, go after in life. So, for example, I personally do not believe that consumerism is the true story, that it's in the accumulation of wealth and all the fun stuff of life. I don't believe that to be the true story. But Christmas is coming up, and there's a lot of really cool um, smart home technology that I personally would love to have in my home. And it feels like those things will make my life have more meaning. But does it? Why? Because my desires don't consistently always line up with what I believe. So tonight, as we journey into the book of Philippians, and we're going to witness the author, the Apostle Paul, reflect on life and death and what makes life worth living. But what I would love for us to do is focus not just on the things he's talking about, the things that we should believe, but the clear affections that he has that lies behind all of them. So last week, 
We discovered Paul's mindset towards this, the terrible circumstances that he has endured. Uh, he has, as we talked about the weeks past, he is currently sitting in a four-year um, house imprisonment in the middle of Rome, the, the belly of the beast in, in the ancient world. He, is, uh, he doesn't know what's going to come from this. He doesn't know if tomorrow he's going to be carted off to an execution. He doesn't know if tomorrow he's going to be set free. He doesn't know if this is going to continue on for a few more years. He doesn't know a lot. So his circumstances are pretty rough, but in the middle of that, he has seen how everything in his story can actually be used by God to serve the gospel. And that is really good news. So Paul talks with a lot of joyful language in the midst of really crummy situations that he is actively rejoicing because the gospel is advancing. And that's good news to Paul. So from there tonight, we're going to continue on Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 18. Uh, If you have not gotten one of these, I believe we still have some some of these scripture journals that are available in the lobby when you're leaving tonight. Um, They're really cool and handy and you can mark them, underline them, all that kind of stuff. So verse 18, kind of towards the end of verse 18, it's that new paragraph and here's how Paul starts the sentence. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will not turn out for my this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now that's a pretty long run-on sentence. So he starts by saying, I will rejoice. So he has just finished saying, I am rejoicing, but now he's talking into the present and future context. I will rejoice. When was the last time you truly rejoiced over something? Not where like somebody gave you something and you know you should be grateful. So you're like, oh, thank you. But like, like you truly rejoiced. Maybe it was like a super delicious meal. You ate this meal and you were like, that is the best fill in the blank that I've ever had. Maybe uh, you went on a first date or something and like you're, maybe it went well and you're like, wow, I am rejoicing at how fun that was. Like how much I enjoyed this, this interaction. Maybe you just got off a Disney cruise or something like that. Like you are, re- like you rejoiced on that Disney cruise. Maybe you just got good news on a phone call. What has ever led you to rejoice? Not like I should feel good about this thing. But like, it just comes just as naturally as anything else. Like naturally, like it just wellsprings up joy. So Paul has been rejoicing, not because he should, not because he needs to, but because this is what God has stirred up in him. He will rejoice into the future as well. But why? What is he taught? What is the reason for his rejoicing? Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So the reason for his joy that he is talking, the reason he's talking about rejoicing is because he will be delivered from his current circumstances. But what gives him this confidence? Is it because Paul is one really wise dude? Like this guy, he's figured it out. Or is it because he has like some gut feeling and he just, he just believes that it's going to happen so it must come true? Or is it because Paul has been secretly um, hatching a plan, digging, um, digging a tunnel with a spoon underneath this place and escaping? No. He says it's because of two things. Because of their prayers 
Because of their prayers. Because of this church that he hasn't seen in years. Because they have can you pray for him. He has this confidence. It's not rooted in Paul, but he is so grateful because of their prayers. Because they have continued to intercede, going to God on his behalf. That their gospel partnership is so thriving. And because Paul believes that prayer actually makes a difference. That's so different than the way that me and you probably live our everyday lives, right? We probably don't live like prayer makes that big of a difference. We live looking towards our wisdom, our intuition, our wisdom, our way of figuring things out. That is what gives us confidence. But for Paul, their prayers are giving him confidence in this. But also because of the help of the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit has been serving Paul as his comforter, as his counselor, pointing him to hear, the, to hear his voice in the scriptures, serving as his guide when the trail does not look very clear ahead. So Paul has this great confidence because of their prayers, because this church continues to partner with him in prayer, and because the Spirit of God is dwelling in him. And that means a lot more than we know. So he has this confidence. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul desires to continually focus his hope, not on himself or on his circumstances, but he has confidence that his hope will not be wasted. But instead, even his courage that he summons up isn't rooted in himself. It is rooted fully in Christ. Because you see, he wants to see Christ honored in his body, in his life. Paul views nothing about his life as his own. He doesn't view his body as his own, his heart, his mind, his future, his present. Everything he has has been marked property of Jesus Christ everything about him. It's not his. So he doesn't have ownership. So his courage, his confidence, it's not in Paul. It's in Christ and what he is doing and what he will continue to affect. And then he explains though something super important at the end when he says, whether by life or by death. Now, why is that important? Because that last part actually changes the rereading of this entire sentence structure. Remember, he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. He is confident that this will turn out for his deliverance. But when you or I think of deliverance for Paul, we probably think that it it has to mean that he is going to get to walk out a free man vindicated. But Paul's saying, maybe not. Whether by life or death, I will be delivered. Paul will be delivered either from his imprisonment by being able to walk right out of the door or, and then he will continue to do the work of the gospel wherever God has for him as long as he's here. Or he will be delivered from planet death if the Rome does the worst that they can conceive, which is to execute him. If they do that, he's saying, even then I'm delivered. Because in that, in that, is still a deliverance. And now Paul gets to a verse that you very well may be aware of. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Paul isn't using hyperbole here. He isn't just like talking in the ethereal context. Like, like, like for me, when I die one day, that's gonna be game. No, Paul's saying like tomorrow, if I get summoned to the gallows, that's game. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So I have a question for you. How would you fill in the blank in this sentence? For me, living is blank. What is living? What makes you feel alive? What makes you feel like you have a life worth meaning? For me, living is money. For me, living is power. For me, living is going on epic adventures. For me, living is fulfilling my dreams. For me, living is my individual freedoms. What is living for you? You see, so oftentimes what we would call living, what we, what, not what we would say we believe, but what our hearts desire are rooted in our circumstances, the things that happen here and now, the things that can be given and things that can be taken away. And it's that taken away part that if those are the things that make life worth living, then the, then the negation of that makes life death. So if for me, living is blank, then what is dying to that? If living is money, then dying is being broke. If living is power, then dying is being powerless. If living is my individuality, then, living, then dying is conformity. If living is adventure, then living is boredom and monotony. If living is fulfilling my dreams, then death is the end of my pursuit. See, in our short lives, what will we live for? What will we die for? See, we don't want to live simply for the circumstances of this world. We don't want to live merely for money or sex, power, beauty, or entertainment. I mean, these things are gifts of God. And they are things that we are called to steward properly, to use the way that he calls us to use them. But the second they become the aims of our life, the things that give our life meaning, they turn into idols. And in that moment, in that space, we begin to spend our lives on something that only matters in the here and now, a thing that can be given and a thing that can be taken away. But instead, for Paul, when he is saying, for me, to live is Christ. And when he's saying that, what he is saying is, I have put my stock on the one thing that does not deflate, the one thing that cannot bounce, there's one thing that can't be stripped away from me. Because if living is Christ, then death means my, I get to be present with him. And that can only be measured as gain. Because before then, on this side of eternity, on planet death, my relationship with him isn't face to face. But then it's actually gain. So Paul, again, he is not being hyperbolic. He isn't using a figure of speech. He is being very literal. For me, living is Christ. Living is I get the opportunity to serve the God of the universe. And to die means that I get to live with him in his forever kingdom. So that's Paul's heart here. See, all the things that we get wrapped up in can be 
are circumstances that can be given, that can be taken away. But if we have Jesus as our sure anchor, if, we tr- if Jesus truly is better, then there isn't a downside to this equation. There is only a discovery more and more of what, who he is and what he is. So for Paul, living is Christ. Time is gain. And that is going to be, for the rest of our passage that we're going to be in tonight, Paul is going to invite us now into this internal dialogue where he's going to be weighing the pros and the cons of these two realities that he is facing. Continuation of his earthly ministry in life or the end of his earthly ministry in life and the beginning of his presence in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to watch the way he is kind of going back and forth waffling on this because Paul is not talking in terms of ending his life and he is also not being flippant. He is talking about the realities that are very real to him right now. So verses 22 and 23, Paul continues, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. So Paul's saying, I don't know exactly how this is all going to end out. But what he is essentially saying is he's saying, but it's a win-win. I, uh, the language he is using in the Greek is that he is actually hemmed in between these two things that are pulling at him. He is, he is in this space. He doesn't know how it's all going to play out. But what he is saying is while I am here, I get to serve Jesus here. I get to make him known now. I get to not waste a moment, even in prison. And if the worst should happen and they execute me, then I get to be in the presence of Jesus forever. And that's good news. Verse 24, Paul continues, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So you can see he's kind of like waffling back and forth here. He's saying, I get to serve you all. And that's really encouraging. Now, I want to pause here for a second and talk about the concept of affections, desires, See, Paul here is not just spouting off a bunch of theologically dry stuff, just right things to believe. What he is talking about is the things, the wrestle that is happening inside his own heart. Which way is this going to turn out? To live is Christ, to die is gain. He isn't just telling them that so they'd go, oh, I didn't realize. Like now I know. So now, cool, live is Christ, die is gain. Put it on a bumper sticker, right? Like that's not Paul at all. What he's saying is, this is, the, this is the, the, the tension in my own heart. See, most of us would agree with Paul in saying that Jesus is better. We sing songs about it, right? We sense the beauty of it. We would say that Jesus is what makes life worth, worth it. Yet, going on epic vacations feels like it really makes life worth it, right? Pursuing our dreams, relationships, and job opportunities. Like it feels like that's what makes life worth it. And see, for Paul though, his affections have been so transformed as he's been discipled into the way of Jesus and spent time with Jesus that his tastes have changed. His tastes have changed. His palate has changed. 
And this reminds me a lot of the way that um, people like me who enjoy a lot of junk food and um, things and uh, Skittles and other candy bars and fried foods and fried candy and stuff. Uh, like, like those of us who like that unhealthy stuff, like none of us are, de- I, I've never heard somebody defend healthy or unhealthy food that it's actually healthy, right? Like we're aware when you put something in a deep fryer, it does not come out as a healthier version of itself, right? Like we're aware of that. But if you give me the option that I can eat a chia seed quinoa bowl with a roasted vinaigrette glaze on top or a four for four from Wendy's. <laughs> Y'all know which way I'm ta- turning on this one, right? I, like they brought back spicy nuggets last year. That was wonderful for me and dangerous for me. See, my palate prefers Wendy's even though I know the other is better for me, right? You see, Jesus, he meets us at the point of our belief, but he desires to shape our affections. He wants to transform our tastes to not only believe in him, but actually want him more than the things of this earth. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And the things of this world go strangely dim. They lose their luster. The four for four, metaphorically speaking, uh, loses its luster because our our tastes have been changed to Jesus. But not just because we know more, although we are called to know him more, but it's that he is the one we know. And then in that space, we change. See, this is the patient and whisper work that comes from abiding with Jesus. Just as our palates change as we slowly move from reluctant diet change to excitedly enjoying good nutrition. As we abide with Jesus, as we spend time with him in spiritual rhythms like prayer and fasting and and engaging in the scripture and worshiping together with our brothers and sisters. Like when we do these things, when we live in generosity, when we live in these rhythms, both privately and corporately together, our palates change to want him more than the things of this world. No, but here's the rub, right? If, our, if we don't decrease our diet on the junk food, on the false stories, then how can our appetites ever truly change? Y'all, this is convicting for me. But what happens What happens as we do this is we become discipled, formed, and reformed like Paul is here to the point where feasting on the word of life is way better tasting than feasting on anything this world has to offer. Like that's Paul's heart here. This is what he's wrestling with. This is why he can say for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But yet I'm still kicking here. And as long as that's the case, there's some stuff worth diving into. Paul continues, verse 25 and 26, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. So Paul does have some sense that his earthly ministry is not over just yet for your progress and join the faith. But he's not saying, because this is what I want. He already said what he wanted, Christ 
to be present with him. Like that is his preference. If he's got a vote in it, that's his vote. But he's saying, but for your benefit, because of what God is doing in this ministry that he has called me to, for your progress and join the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, Paul desires so greatly to be present with Jesus. It's just obvious. But he is saying, but I don't think my story's over here. In fact, it's like he's checking his pulse. He is seeing that there is still blood in the veins. His heart is still beating. And that means that he still has a mission to go after. He still has a king to serve. He still has a Jesus to pursue in the here and now and to encourage others to do the same. See, this is the opportunity that you and I have. None of us know when, when our lives in the here and now end, right? We just don't know that. For our best efforts, we don't know. But what I do know, what we do know is that in this life, while there is breath in your lungs and blood in your veins circulating, you have the opportunity to make much of Jesus. Or we have the opportunity to make much of the things that we desire in the here and now. See, that's the opportunity. And it's not like we just switch gears one day and then we move over to the other. It's not like that. It is a continual lifelong journey where slowly, day after day, our tastes are refined to desire more of Christ and less of the things of this world. It grows strangely dim, but not overnight. It grows strangely dim through a life pursuing after Jesus and making him known, both in a biblical community and outside of the local church, as we go live on mission in our workplaces, as we go and live on mission um, in our neighborhoods and with our roommates and with our families, as we go and make him known and display the beauty and express the glory of Jesus and put him on display. When we engage in these spaces, we have opportunity. And that's what Paul is showing us here, right? He is just showing us an example of faithfulness, a life well lived. That whether he lives for decades or five more minutes, he's going to use however many seconds left to serve and honor Christ. So what do you believe gives life ultimate worth and value? The scriptures tell us its answer. It's Christ. See, it's not a thing and it's not just a life philosophy. It's a person and it's Jesus See, Jesus is the reason for all of this. And what's crazy about that is that means that it's not just a, uh, an author to consume his, uh, his philosophy of. It is a person to know and to engage with in the here and now. See, this is what happens. He is the only one worthy of our desires and our affections. Yet even for those of us who if you're like me, you might believe that true story to be the true story. Yet it doesn't always necessarily feel true. Our affections get captured by those other stories of the world. We're not alone. But we have the opportunity to bring these things to God. And this is my simple challenge for you this week. That you would take this, put it in your notebook, um, and journal about this with God. But go into a time of confession before him. 
confessing the things that you are tempted to hold and say, or hold away from him and say, like, you can have everything except for, like, the entertainment I consume. You can have everything except for my career path, or you can have everything except for fill in the blank. Confess those things to him. Bring them to him. Because it's not an on and off switch. It's a dimmer switch over a lifetime, but it takes day after day pursuing after him. And with that, I wanna invite you guys to um, our prayer and worship night that's this Tuesday. At it, we're gonna be focusing our hearts and our minds on this in the space of soul care, working to recalibrate our affections towards Jesus. I'll close with this. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. A great preacher of the 1800s once, once said this, and it's always stuck with me, and I think it's, it's really powerful. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. But by God's help, I aim to be that man. I think as an in, like for an individual, that sounds audacious, and it sounds like something beyond our abilities. But you know what I think is even cooler than one person? A community. What if all of us as men and women and children who desire to know God and make him known, if that became the desire of our heart, like think about that. If we were sold out as a community, body, soul, and mind to Jesus, the witness that that would display to Walt Disney World, to Winter Garden, to the world around us. I think that would be really cool. So with that, Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are good and kind, that you are merciful and helpful, that the things that you want for us are so much better than anything that we want for ourselves. And so Lord, right now I confess, Lord, just that my heart so often wants those competing stories my desires, Lord, don't match up with the truth that I believe that Jesus really is better. So Father, I know that I'm not the only one here tonight. So I pray for each and every one of us that are in this space, that Lord, you would be transforming our hearts and our minds to desire you. Lord, I don't wanna waste this life and I don't want any of us to waste our lives. So Lord, I pray that we would see that with each moment that we have between now and our death date, Lord, that we have opportunity to know you and to make you known. So Lord, by the power of your spirit, the prayers that we have for one another, Lord, would you challenge us? Would you grow us? Would you disciple us into the way of your son, Jesus? It's in his name we pray, amen.